You're listening to audio from New City Church in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. We are a gospel-centered church with a heart for the next generation, passionate about making disciples who will renew our city in the real Jesus. For more information about New City, please visit our website at www.mynewcity.church. All right, my friends, let's open the book together. Colossians chapter 1 is where we're going to be today. If you're new to the Bible, um, you're going to find Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and then Colossians. So if you see any of those books, you're getting pretty close. You're on the right track. There's some small books in there, so they can be hard to kind of find there. But um, as you turn there, if I could invite you to just go ahead and stand in reverence for the reading of God's word today. And we will dig in. Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14 today. They say this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it is also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to, you, to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to God the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is God's word. You can have a seat this morning. Well, we get to begin our trek through the book of Colossians. Um, when we start a book, I always feel like uh, a bit like a Sherpa. You know what a mountain Sherpa is? Um, that's the, the, the guide, basically, who sort of carries the backpack and, and helps the mountaineers on their way up the mountain. I just want to be your Sherpa today. I want to help you get your mind around the book of Colossians. This will, again, take us up to the season of Advent. Um, Often you might be coming in asking like, why, why preach through the book of Colossians right now? How do you decide? And I want to I wanna put my cards on the table and tell you I'm a Bible guy. They're all good, okay? So we could literally go anywhere in this book and uh, preach and there would be goodness and help for us. But if you're asking why this book now, um, here are a couple of reasons. In the Western church, there is a biblical literacy crisis, actually understanding the overarching sweeping story of God creating, uh, of people falling away, of Jesus coming and redeeming his people and moving us toward the end of redemption. 
understanding how all of these diverse books fit together in that story, that's not a widely held skill or awareness. In fact, um, I read some studies this week from some Bible research organizations that said, in 2021, believe it or not, 50% of Americans said that they read the Bible at least three to four times a year outside of church, which I heard that stat, and I actually thought that was on the high side. That's kind of interesting to me. Um, but the year after um, the study was done, and that number had fallen to 39%. Um, and so how, do, how does an 11% gap happen in the course of a year? Remember, those are, those are sort of pandemic numbers. So I, what I don't want you to miss is that as the people of God scattered and stopped gathering together, as they left one another, they also left the word behind. And as we lose our tether to the word, we ultimately lose our tether to Jesus. This is a big deal. Engagement with scripture is increasingly low in our day. And you need to hear me, if, if you're that person who you're coming and you're going, man, three to four times a year engaging with the Bible, that's probably generous. I don't even know if I'm there, I want you to know I'm really, really glad you're here. And I, I want to tell you there is treasure awaiting you in this book. I just want to invite you to the book. So um, the reason we preach through Colossians right now is because one of the best ways for a church to help you understand this story of the Bible is to preach through books of the Bible. I want you to finish our time in Colossians having a sense of, man, what was this author, Paul, saying to this audience? What does it mean? And ultimately, why in the world does it matter for my life? We want you to get your head and your heart around that. Another great encouragement for the reason we preach through this book right now comes from 2 Timothy where he says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I want you to notice, scripture is breathed out by God. This means when you open the Bible, you get the first half of conversation with the God of the universe. Like man, you want God to speak to you? You wanna hear his voice? Open the book. You can reliably, with confidence, hear his voice as you open the book. And the other thing I want you to notice there, it trains us in righteousness as we understand the Bible. It trains us. What does it look like to live for God? What does it look like to experience and know his love? You may not have come in this morning equating um, a morning in church to a day at the gym, right? Of training, of growing in strength, but that's exactly what the Apostle Paul there in 2 Timothy tells us that it does. And so, my friends, I'm very, very excited to get into this book with you. I want to go ahead and give you what I believe is the main point of today's text and very close to the main point of this whole book of Colossians. Here it is. Through his beloved son, God makes us beloved children. Through his beloved son, God makes us beloved children. Now, beloved is a churchy word. Like I'm betting you were not out this week and you didn't have anybody call you beloved or use beloved in a sentence. And because of that, because it's sort of uh, 
it doesn't blip our radar as a church where a couple of things can happen. Number one, um, it just sort of goes over our head. It doesn't really land with any impact, right? We hear, okay, yeah, I'm beloved, right, right, right. I've probably got that on like a t-shirt or a coffee cup or something. And um, yeah, I'm with you. Okay, now let's move on to the really, really good stuff. So it sort of misses us. But, but here's the thing. It's the kind of word that if it lands on you, If the implications of being the beloved one of God land on your life, it changes the fundamental operating system. Changes everything. The other thing that can happen is like we hear a word like beloved and it almost makes us uncomfortable. Like, man, I I read that word at times and I'm like, okay, yeah, beloved, but like I know me really well and God has no business calling me his beloved. Like sometimes I'm a dumpster fire, and you too. It seems almost inappropriate for the God of the universe to look at you and me and say like, yeah, that's my beloved, that's my son, that's my daughter. But nevertheless, Christian, whether you like it or not, you are the beloved of God because you have been hidden in the beloved son. See, you get glimpses of what belovedness feels like at times in this life. Have you ever, um, you ever gone to a dinner party and you just walk in and sort of beforehand you're like rehearsing lines in your head of how can I sound authentic or how can I sound cool or I wanna make sure I put my best foot forward here. If that's how you're walking into a dinner party, you, are, you do not yet feel beloved in that community. When you feel beloved in a community, you know what you do? You walk in and you go, these are my people. I don't have to prove anything here. I'm safe. I belong. I'm not, I'm not trying to show them that I'm enough or that I belong here. But man, once you're beloved, you get to rest. That's a really beautiful thing. When you're beloved, failure looks different. Like if you're not beloved to someone and you fail them, you know what you usually do? You usually make a list of all the ways that you're not going to fail them anymore. You make a list and you say, here's, here's how I'm rectifying the situation. And listen, should we try to honor the people that we love? Of course, that's not, don't hear what I'm not saying today. But man, while you used to fail and then make a list of all the ways that you were going to improve, that you would take to God and hold up to him and say, look what I'm going to do for you. When you realize that you're the beloved of God, you run to him before you're cleaned up before the mess is fixed. You believe in your guts that he has not grown tired or weary of forgiving you. See, that's at the heart of the gospel, that there is this overflowing fountain of grace that God keeps covering and keeps loving and keeps redeeming. This is what it means to be the beloved of God. But here's the problem. This feels nearly impossible to believe when in our minds, our failures are big and Jesus is small. Like when your failure 
and your weakness is so zoomed into your face that you just can't see around it. And really in your heart of hearts, you think Jesus is sort of over here to the side, unable to really do anything about the failures and brokenness of your situation. It's when you look at Jesus and you think of him really more as a concept than as a person. And when you think of him like that, the reasons that he should hate your guts feel more real to you than anything. See, that's, that's the barrier between us and walking in our belovedness. Friends, today, we need a bigger vision of Jesus. And that's what the book of Colossians does. Colossians is a gospel reset. It is where God... <laughs> reminds us of who Jesus is in the most clear terms. He wants us to get familiar with the heart and character and nature of his beloved son so that we can step into the party, that we can come into the family, we can belong without any reservation. Through his beloved son, God makes us beloved children. So um, through this text, I just want us to unpack a couple of things. So we're going we're gonna to walk through the text. I'm also going to try to give some context here so you have an understanding of what's going on in the book. The first thing that Paul does is he makes a bold ask. He makes a bold ask of God in prayer. Verse one and two are just his, his greeting and introduction of himself. I want to look at verse three. It says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have laid up for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood it, the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Verse 9, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Here's the content of Paul's prayers, his bold asking for these people. That you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Last verse here. Being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. Paul is working through praying for these people. He's, he is, uh, for some context here, he's probably writing around like 60 to 62 AD. So this is about 30, 35 years after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus. And he's writing to this church at Colossae. Um, Paul is likely um, under house arrest in Rome. And since he's a Roman citizen, he has a little bit of liberty. They'll let him write letters and still send them out to these churches. And so Paul has never been to the church at Colossae, presumably, but he has heard that the Christian movement is breaking out in this place. Colossae at this point is presumably a small town. 
Um, it was a, a town that had gone through this boom where it kind of grew and became large. And then over the years just dwindled in influence and became um, smaller. What's, what's quite interesting about this city is that it's made up mainly not of natives, but of Greek colonists and Jewish refugees who had been relocated there by an emperor years earlier. Um, this city, its culture was really not its own thing, but it was kind of a mix of other cultures. Does that sound familiar to you here in Champaign-Urbana that we've got um, people coming from all over the place? So you've got all these cultures from around the globe that are, um, that are forming and creating the culture of our city. I want you to notice Paul, Paul honors the fact that this is a church with faithful leaders. Did you notice he points to Epaphras who is presumably one of or the pastor of this church? He says, man, there's, there's faithful leaders here and he, he honors their faithful witness to the gospel. And man, y'all, y'all believe the gospel. It came in power um, and you have hit, done the work to begin handing this gospel to the next generation. God is at work in this church and Paul is affirming that, man, this is the real deal. This is a powerful church, but don't miss it. It's not a perfect church. It's powerful, but it's not perfect. It's like us, right? Is God at work here? Yes and amen. Like we're seeing lives transformed. We're seeing stories of death to life and salvation. We're seeing marriages and families restored by the power of the gospel. We're seeing people sustained in really hard seasons of suffering by the grace of God. All of that stuff is true. And get this, we're not a perfect church. In fact, if you came in today saying, man, I'm looking for the church that finally, people, we're gonna have it figured out. Like we're gonna do it just right and we're gonna, get, we're gonna get the theology so perfect and the relationship so perfect that there's not any problems. I just wanna go ahead and disappoint you on the front end. We are not a perfect church. We're not. Like let's just you and me chat for a second. If we do enough life together, I'm gonna disappoint you because I'm just a guy. I'm just a guy. And so are you. Is there power here? Yes, but there's not perfection here. It's the same as this ancient church. What's the problem? You see, in this text, there is a risk for this church. There's a need, there's a problem at hand. And the next section of our text, verses 9 through 11, gives us some clues as to why. In Paul's prayers. How many of you have ever taken an art class before, done any art or painting, anything like that? Okay, a few of us in the room. If you've taken a class, then you know um, the use of negative space in art, right? Like what you put on the canvas versus what isn't on the canvas. What isn't there is part of what's telling the story as well. You could even think about this in music, right? Oftentimes, it is not the notes, but it's the space between notes that gives beauty and musicality. Paul doesn't spell out for us exactly what these false teachers who start creeping into the church at Colossae are teaching, but by virtue of negative space, by virtue of saying, what's here, what is Paul praying for? 
we get a sense of what's going on. Let me ask you, why do you usually pray for something? You pray for something because there's a specific need, right? It's because there's a lack or a danger or a threat. Paul's prayers for this church tell us something about the threats against this church and his desires for them as God's beloved. Let me give you another example from scripture to make sure that you're able to track here with me. Um, One of my favorite places in scripture this happens is in the beginning of the book of Joshua. When God has installed Joshua as the leader of God's people, he's commissioning him and he keeps saying, Joshua, be strong and courageous. I have given this land before you. I want you to go ahead, be strong and courageous. And he says it again and again, be strong and courageous. Who do you keep telling to be strong and courageous? Somebody who's struggling to be strong and courageous, right? That's the same thing here. Paul is praying over these people because there's something specific that they need. And he prays for three specific things. Knowledge of God's will, a worthy walk, and divine endurance. Three things. Knowledge of God's will, a worthy walk, and divine endurance. Now, let's sort of walk these things through. In verse 9, it says, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. This is, um, oftentimes we may hear the phrase God's will and we're mainly thinking about, do I go this way or that way? Do I take this job or that job? Paul here is talking about wisdom from the spirit of God to discern between what's truth and what's error. How, how does, he wants this church to be able to know not just what sounds good, but what is good, what's fact, what's fiction. He wants them to be able to discern between these things. This church was apparently being fed some kind of plausible teaching about who Jesus was that wasn't quite true. Like, how were they going to be able to discern between truth and error, um, God's will and a counterfeit? Um, They needed wisdom from on high. They needed it. Have you ever heard somebody talk about Jesus and it's like, it sounds mostly right? Maybe you've had somebody knock on your door in our community and say, hey, I want to talk to you about Jesus. And you go, yeah, I love talking about Jesus. That sounds great. And then you start talking, you're going, which Jesus though? This doesn't sound quite right. That's the kind of false teaching that's infiltrating this church. And it's presumably why Paul will spend a large section of this book articulating clear wisdom on who Jesus actually is. Can I ask you this morning, how do you discern truth from error? How do you know the difference between what's good and what's not? Like you could pull out your phone and on YouTube or TikTok, you could find 10 plausible arguments right now as to why you shouldn't believe the Bible. How do you know the difference between a plausible argument and actually a good argument? What does, what does God actually say? How can you know? See, we need roots in what we know to be true about God as much as this church in Colossae did. As postmodern, post-truth people, speaking of spiritual experience as true or false can make us nervous because we go, man, it's so subjective. How can I talk about it as true or false? Here's how. In biblical Christianity, 
have to understand that Christ is an actual person with actual desires for the world, with actual values, with an actual way that he has given us to follow. So while our experience of him may be subjective, who he is is not negotiable. He is who he is. And because of that, we need to find roots in him to hold us steady. And to do that, we need knowledge of who he is. That's the first thing Paul prays for. And the second thing he he prays for, did you notice, a walk. Uh, Verse 10, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Paul is describing right here um, a walk with God that is fruitful from the inside out. Right, that knowledge of God is increasing, that good works are growing through your life. You're living more and more like Jesus. Right here, we see an important principle that we need to hold on to as we work our way through the book of Colossians. In God's kingdom, don't miss this, believing leads to behaving. Believing leads to behaving. Like when you get clear on what's true and it actually takes root in your heart, spiritual fruit begins to grow. Like when that wisdom of God's will, when it actually starts to get down into your soul, you know what happens? You begin to intuitively live like Jesus. Like you know that you're actually deeply believing the gospel when you are little by little acting more intuitively like Jesus. Let me give you an illustration here. So sometimes you have a situation where you have time to make a decision, right? Do I, um, do I punch this person or do I not punch this person, right? Maybe you have a second, maybe they've texted you and you got a little, you got a, you got a decision to make. What happens when you don't have any time at all, when you're just in a moment and you're just reacting? That's the place that discipleship is meant to get down into as well. It's not just in the decision moments, it's in the intuitive moments. Like that's the place that we wanna look more like Jesus. When, when you are inexplicably patient in a tough situation, and you're like, I don't know why I'm more patient. I think God's just making me more like Jesus. When you're gracious to your enemies without gritting your teeth, that's the kind of fruit that Paul desires for this church, and he says, And it's belief in the wisdom of God that leads to that kind of behaving. Now, in the West, we tend to equate knowing with believing. We tend to go, well, if I know it, then I believe it. What I want to suggest to you today is that knowing and believing are two different steps in the same process. You have to know, right? There are things that God wants us to know. That's why he's given us his word. But then believing those things, like really believing them in your whole being is an altogether another part of the process, which then leads to actually living, right? Those things actually working their way out. See, sometimes I know, but I don't yet believe, at least not fully. Think about this, like, Like I may know in my head, 
I may know that God is my protector and that he is with me, but then I go into a hard conversation or some, a, a moment where I feel kind of unsafe or kind of worked up and I'm going, God is my protector, God is my protector, but my heart rate is 150 beats a minute. And there's some part of me that hasn't yet received the message that God is my protector. I know it, but there's part of me that doesn't believe it yet. And that makes it almost impossible to live it. See, if this church is gonna walk in a way that really pleases the Lord, that's fruitful and joyful, it means that the journey has to go past knowing, has to go into believing, has to go into living. Some of you are trying to go straight to living but you skipped over believing. Some of you are trying to go straight to living, but you, you, you don't know yet. And I think Colossians is gonna invite us to a fuller picture of this process. What if, my friends, your walk with God could be more than another class or another set of facts to memorize, but could be a dynamic, transformative, transformative walking with God? That's the image of what Paul prays for with a worthy walk in these people. The last thing that he prays for is endurance. You notice that divine endurance. He prays um, for endurance and patience with joy. Like not just that they endure, but that they joyfully endure. Friends, it should be a consolation to us this morning that it was hard for people all the way back in 60 AD to keep going. Like, do you ever wake up and you go like, man, why do we have to care so much about what people think about Jesus? Wouldn't it just be easier to like live and let live? Wouldn't it be easier to just mind my own business? <laughs> it's hard to keep going, isn't it, sometimes? Throwing in the towel was a temptation for this church. And maybe for some of you this morning, you feel the questions in your faith haunting you and you drove to church this morning going, man, I hope I either get some convincing answers that will quiet all these fears and these doubts inside of me, or I hope he says something crazy so I can feel justified and going, I just don't wanna do this anymore. I just give up. If that's you, my friend, you need an endurance from on high today. You need exactly what Paul is praying over this church. And I want to give you good gospel news this morning that Colossians is a billboard that says endurance, next exit. Like you need some endurance, you need some help. Jesus wants you to be so completely moved and stirred by who he is that you can't help but endure. See, this morning, you don't need another invitation to muster up belief in Christ. Paul knew, knew this too. It's why the first thing he says is not to tell them how to act, but it's to remind them of who Jesus actually is, and in turn, who we are. Like today, what if the invitation of Colossians is for you to just sit at his feet and actually get a sense for who he is? He's not a concept. He is a personal Lord. He is a king. You 
if you begin to see him for who he is and you recognize that that God is on your side, you know what you'll do? You will endure with annoying optimism. Like the kind of optimism that goes like, yeah, I know the wind is in our face. I know that it seems like the odds are never in our favor. I know that it seems like everybody hates our, our um, sexual ethics and they hate what we say about this and that and that. But we are going to love this city as they spin in our face with a smile. Like you spin our face, we'll just get a towel, we'll get you a bottle of water because you're probably parched at this point. That kind of endurance and optimism is what he does. I want us to zoom out and think one more thing here through Paul's bold ask. Paul is praying with boldness, and many of us share, we fail to share that same kind of boldness when asking God. The question is why? Paul was able to make a bold ask because he believed that both he and this church were God's beloved. When you're beloved, you ask bold things. Tim Keller famously says, um, only a child would have the audacity to go wake a king up in the middle of the night for a glass of water. That's the kind of access you have with your father. Because many of us fail to see ourselves as part of the beloved son's family, we don't ask with any optimism or hope. Christian, if you belong to Jesus in the room this morning, let me just speak the truth over you. You are part of the beloved family. Jesus says in his most famous sermon of all time, he's like, what father, even an earthly father who's wicked like you, would hear his children ask for something that they need and not supply it? How much more your heavenly father? He loves to give good gifts. You are part of the beloved family which means you should come boldly before the throne of grace. You should come into God's presence believing that he will act. That's one of the great gifts of the gospel. Paul makes a bold ask, and the basis of his ask is who God has made his people to be, and that's what we'll see really in the next point, which is this. Paul then turns to talking about a bright inheritance. Bright inheritance. Read with me in verse 12. All endurance and patience with joy. Verse 12. Giving thanks to God the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved, there's that word, son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Remember, Paul is still praying right here, but the reason that he's praying, the basis for his prayers right here is because of what he prayed in this last section. I love that Paul is praying and teaching at the same time. This is such a pastor move right here. Like he is, he is sneaking another sermon point into the end of his prayer, which is just unfair. When, when I get up here and go like, hey, I'm done, let's pray. And then I just pray for like 10 more minutes. It doesn't seem right. That's exactly what Paul is doing here. The reason that Paul can... Be sure that God will answer prayers on behalf of these Christians 
is because of what he says right here. Do you notice the first thing that he prays and acknowledges as true? The Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. A Christian, you have been offered an inheritance. I'm paraphrasing here, but he's saying, the Father has qualified you for his inheritance. I don't want you to miss what God's word just said to you, Christian. Now, because of Jesus, you are in line for the infinite riches of God that would have never been accessible to you before. The infinite lavish love of the Father, what Ephesians 3 says, the immeasurable riches of his kindness, you now stand in line for. Now, what do we know about how an inheritance is transferred? It's the same way here in the ancient world as it is now. And um, a benefactor dies, right? Somebody dies. And then they gather the family together and they say, hey, here's the final will and testament. This person gets this, this person gets this, and they are beneficiaries of this inheritance. So Paul is saying right here, you in Jesus Christ have been offered an inheritance. Now that sounds good, but what's the content of the inheritance? He tells us in the next verse. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I wanna make sure you follow the logic right here. Because you are in Jesus Christ, because you belong to him, the inheritance of the beloved son becomes your inheritance as well. Here's the thing. The son and his father have shared this inheritance together for all of eternity. The love, the glory, the majesty, the joy of God. They have been in perfect fellowship and relationship forever. And then the son of God steps into creation and he dies so that his people can receive his inheritance. They can receive the benefit of the inheritance, but here's where it gets even better. He doesn't just die and say, I'm gonna go away and I'm gonna leave you my stuff. No, no, no. He comes back to life. He beats death so that now you get to share in the inheritance with Jesus. Like you get him and you get his stuff. That's crazy. It means you get to be forgiven, you get to be redeemed, you get to be part of the family. Now, a verse like this in the Bible should make us say, who in the world does that? Like, who dies to share their inheritance with other people? Like, maybe, maybe you could get someone to do that for their best friend or somebody who is really a good person or really righteous or something but who dies to share an inheritance with their enemies? There's nobody like that but Jesus. And Paul wants you to see that this morning. He wants you to see that there is nobody who would look at the worst moments of your life, lay down their rights for you, and then share the inheritance of eternity. Tells us exactly what the inheritance is. You have inherited redemption. 
Like redemption, that, that simply means just like covering over. It's, it's, a, it's a redo of, of sorts. Like have you ever seen a movie, right, where they're diffusing a bomb and there's 30 seconds left and there are three wires, a red, a green, and a blue wire, and they have to figure out which wire to cut? What happens when you cut the wrong wire? <laughs> That's it, right? But now imagine, like when they cut the right wire, what happens? Everybody watching and everybody in this situation, what do they do? <sighs> they breathe a sigh of relief. Like here's what's happened in the gospel. You cut the wrong wire, but God still stopped the timer. That's what's happened in redemption. What, you know what redemption is meant to feel like? It's meant to feel like relief, rescue, and exhale. You are redeemed, follower of Jesus. He has covered over your wrongdoing. That's the second thing he says here. Um, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You are forgiven, follower of Jesus. Like you know what unforgiveness feels like, right? Like think in a relationship when there's unforgiveness, even if it's over something small, what happens in the relationship? It kind of gets cool and distant, doesn't it? Have you ever noticed when there's unforgiveness in a relationship, communication starts to get really formal? All the warmth leaves. That's for something small. Now let's scale that up for a moment to divine treason against Almighty God. If that's the betrayal, if that's the level, what relationship can possibly come back from that kind of brokenness? Here's a good gospel word for you this morning, my friends. Christ has so deeply buried the record of your sins, that the Father's love bears no memory of your wrongs. He is not keeping score. He is not checking his watch, wondering why you aren't quicker at getting it together. You are forgiven. There is returned warmth in the heart of the Father toward you, follower of Jesus. Some of you need to believe that afresh today. Like you are walking around with the weight of your failures on your shoulders. And if you belong to Jesus, those failures belong to him. He's buried them in the grave. Eric, you go ahead and come up, my friend. I'm almost done. See, some of you, you're hearing about being the beloved of God this morning, and you're going like, man, I don't feel beloved of God. I am not an heir to this inheritance yet. And, and the reason you're not yet an heir is just because you don't belong to Jesus yet. And if that's you, I want you to know there's room for you today. Simply believe the gospel. Turn away from your sins. Turn from trying to make yourself lovely enough to be accepted by God and instead receive the forgiveness of Jesus. It's really that simple. Just believe. If you believe this, the Bible says you will be born again. Like friends, some of you are struggling because you're carrying the past around. You need to remember your belovedness this morning. You need to have the boldness to confess that whether I like it or not, whether I feel beloved or not, this is what God's word says about his own. 
Some of you yet are leaving your inheritance on the shelf and you're trying to do this on your own and you're really tired. What if it didn't have to be that way? Can you imagine for a moment having access to a bottomless trust fund and and never using it because you just want to scrap it out on your own? Don't leave the riches of heaven sitting in your bank account, Christian. No, no, no. Take hold of the gospel. Receive it. You are the beloved of God. You couldn't earn that. That's good news. I'm hoping we believe it today. Let's pray. God, our Father, I just know, I mean, I know specifically some of the burdens in this room, but there are other burdens I don't even know in this room. Right now, there are people who are carrying stuff and it's really hard to endure and they need help. And so today, I'm praying right now, Holy Spirit, that you will refresh their vision of Jesus. Refresh our vision of Jesus. Remind us of who he is. I just wanna invite you to do your good work in the room today. Whatever there is to lay down, get laid down. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. My friends, we want you to respond to God's word today. And the first way that you can respond is simply by reflecting. There in your seat, ask God, Father, as I've sung the word and I've heard the word preached, how do you want me to respond today? There's something you want me to believe. There's something you want me to do in response. Is there a new truth of the gospel that I need to hold on to today? Just reflect, ask the Lord how he'd have you respond. The second way we respond is by remembering the Lord's death as we take the supper. The Lord's supper was this image, this symbol given to us by the Lord Jesus himself, where he took bread and he broke it and he took wine and he blessed it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. Take this meal in remembrance of me. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you are a Christian in the room, we welcome you to the Lord's table today, to this family meal. And as you take it, I would just invite you today to remember that your belovedness came at such a cost to the Lord Jesus. For him to share his inheritance with you cost him everything. But because he's Jesus, he was glad to lay it down. Come to the table and take. If you are not yet a follower of Jesus, I just invite you to stay in your seat and ask God, God, how would you have me respond right now? What if I would even believe the gospel for the first time and take this family meal? for the first time today. Finally, friends, we rehearse by singing. There's a day coming when you're not gonna have to fight to believe that you're beloved because you're gonna be with him. Once you get this, you're one day closer. One day closer. That day's coming. 
when you won't need to struggle for a bigger vision of Jesus because it'll be right there in front of your face. New City, I love you. I love being your pastor. Respond when you're ready.